0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine runner, off. we have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. Our guest this episode is one of the best known entrepreneurs in new space, Peter Platzer, the founder and CEO of Spire. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, including talking about commercial space in general and about Spire's new space as a service offering. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one. If you enjoyed the podcast, a reminder to please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, so more people can find out about it. Thank you. I'll give you a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Peter. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by... Peter Platzer, the CEO and founder of Spire. Welcome, Peter.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. What a fun. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Me too. And you know what I'm especially excited about? This is the first in person recording I'm doing since March 2020. I think that they're, they're actually, we're somewhere in the mid 50s of the number of episodes of the Space Business Podcast. I think this is episode number 55 or something. I think there have only ever been three episodes live recorded or so. And then Corona hit.
1: Well, I'm honored to be one of those.
0: Here we go. And we are here in uh, Spire's offices in, in, in Luxembourg, and we might as well start here. Luxembourg, I think a lot of people probably, a lot of listeners have heard about Luxembourg as an you know, emerging um, space nation and a really exciting ecosystem. Do you just want to give us a few minutes about your view being based in, in Luxembourg and your experience? Absolutely.
1: Um, I met uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister, D.P.M. Schneider, in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, at a conference in NASA, it's now probably five or six years ago. And he really had a fantastic vision for Luxembourg in leveraging space to to grow and, and diversify the economy because he recognized that Luxembourg has this great asset of being a country. And as you know, you know, starting with the Outer Space Treaty and the uh, Earth Observation uh, Convention and the other international laws and the ITU, space law is really set up for an equitable use Mm -hmm. where being a country gives you the right to participate on a more or less equal footing. Mm -hmm. And so he really had this vision of bringing a lot of uh, space to Luxembourg, recognizing that there is a massive transformational wave going on in the space industry that some of the big banks in the U.S. project to be trillions of dollars of GDP in the next um, uh, ten or twenty years, and we really got attracted by this commitment uh, from the country. And you know, we moved here four years ago. Mm-hmm. It is now our second largest office, and you know, I'm originally from Austria, so I feel incredibly at home here, mm-hmm. and especially. The, uh, when you when you look at the international nature of it. I mean, everyone speaks a minimum of four or five languages. Yep. So you have a very, very international environment that makes it a very, very pleasant and interesting place to live.
0: And I guess by now the ecosystem is so big with other prominent companies that people may know like iSpace and, and Redwire and so forth that there is really sort of... You're probably starting to have network effects, right? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I mean, you, you run into the people... Um, uh, uh, in, in, in conferences, but also for, for collaborations with, with with customers and others. So it really has started to work given the size of number of companies that they have attracted. They have an investment fund here that is focused on space. They have a, a separate space agency set up that is very commercially focused. So it's, it's really, I think, a quite productive environment.
0: Yeah, and I must saying, I, I love coming here as well and I'm, I'm currently enrolled at the University of Luxembourg for doctoral studies as well, so I have a reason to come regularly. And lastly, the The food and drinks are fantastic here. (laughs) So now that um, I hope we've made our friends at the LSA and the Luxembourg government happy, let's talk about spy a little bit and the space industry in general. Peter. A lot of, I think actually most people in the space sector obviously know you and know Spire. Now, one of our ambitions with the Space Business Podcast, though, was to always reach people who are not yet members of the space sector. So I'm going to ask you to give an introduction of yourself and Spire anyway, if you don't mind.
1: I absolutely happy to. So I'm, I'm originally from Austria, a physicist that then worked on the business side um, in, in strategy consulting and then went to business school in the U.S., after which I spent nine years as an investment manager on Wall Street, Mm -hmm. and then through an event on NASA Ames, came into contact with people like Peter Diamandis and Salim Ismail and Neil Jacobson and others, and, and recognized that finally space had reached that point of being on an exponential curve and being relevant to solve problems on Earth for everyday people. Now, I had been waiting of this literally for decades, I actually, at one point, wrote a mission statement for my life, which was to lead, inspire, and create the business of space for the benefit of all. But when I looked at it about once a decade, unfortunately, it was just too slow an industry. And so it was uh, then, in uh, uh, in about 2010, I left uh, uh, my job and went back to uh, to school. Uh, in Strasbourg, and and got my last credit degree in space science and did the piece of research there that started spire and spire's sole business is to leverage space to solve problems on earth Mm -hmm. we use a a particularly uh, a particular modality um, radio frequencies to observe activities in the earth so we uh, we track the 17 trillion dollars of global trade Mm-hmm. Uh, we track, track um, all of uh, uh, aviation activity. Uh, we track and predict the weather. Which is impacting some 30, 40 trillion dollars of global GDP, and I would say argue 100% of the world population, and sell our data and services as a subscription to uh, uh, commercial companies and uh, civil uh, agencies and, and 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 defense agencies, and we have about 500 or more customers as of today.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was uh, when was the NASA Ames conference that inspired you to do this all? So
1: that was in two. 2009. Okay. And then in 2010, I left my job. I started um, uh, in Strasbourg in 2011, graduated in 2012 and started the company in September in the true proverbial garage in San Francisco.
0: Understood. So 2009, that was, I mean, compared to where we are today, obviously still very early days for what we these days call new space. And you know, yes. we can argue about that expression, whether it makes sense or not, but let's let's say it anyway. So I think, yeah, SpaceX had already flown, finally flown the Falcon 1 on the fourth attempt. Yeah, um, They may have won, I think they did their first financing round in 2008, but they were nowhere near where they are now. So that was still an aggressive bet to take. So let me ask you, what gave you the comfort to take that bet? And then how did you end up choosing Spire's business model when, of course, you could have chosen other space sectors as well. And as we know, of course, a lot of people got attracted to things like, like the launch business, right? And you build rockets. It's very yep. exciting. What made you choose? What was the process and the, think, the thinking you went through to come up with Spire? So the
1: first thing that really helped me was that I lived through, not very actively, but, you know, partially actively, but mostly by experience, through the transformation from mainframe computers to personal computers to the Internet, Mm-hmm. So, when I was at CERN, we had like this massive supercomputer, a Cray, between, you know, three layers of security, and and today I carry a Cray that is like 10 times as powerful as the Cray 2 we had there in in my pocket. Mm -hmm. I had built the early PCs. I had been at the conferences where people said there is a world market for three computers and Mm -hmm. no one Mm -hmm. needs them at home. So I had seen what Moore's Law, what an exponential improvement in capability for a fixed price and size point does to an industry. And I just started to see exactly the same thing happening in the space industry, finally, which I had monitored for many, many years, you know, literally like a few decades at that point in time. And so that gave me then the confidence that, you know, here is something happening. And given that I had been passionate about it since I was a teenager, um, uh, there was just a merging of a passion for something that finally had come to a um, the first. Inkling of an exponential stage. And then when I got my graduate degree in space science in France, I did a piece of research where I looked at all of the capabilities of all of these small satellite missions that had been done since the invention of this new standard that they call a CubeSat. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was a very steady exponential improvement, 10x performance every five years, which is faster than Moore's Law. And when I talked with 100 experts from the space industry, 111 or so I interviewed, yeah. they all saw a very linear, slow progression of capability. Right. And that was a classic, you know, disruption, Clayton-Christensen um, uh, difference between an exponentially improving technology and the linear perception of the rest of the world. And that gave me the confidence Yes, here is um, a business. Here is a technology that is capable of really solving problems on Earth that are relevant. Because I projected forward, what will the capabilities be in five years and in 10 years yeah. if I follow this 10x every five years curve? Yeah. And it was blindingly obvious that by 2015, by 2020, those devices will be highly capable solving real-world problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And out of curiosity, when you were elaborating those statistics, the improvement statistics for yourself, how how were you measuring performance? Was that looking at capabilities like you know spatial or other resolution, or how did you think about that?
1: All of them. Yeah. Okay, right? so I literally read just about every single paper that I could find. Right, I think there was something like 963 that had been published with the word cubes or nanosat in it at that point in time, uh, and I read almost every single one of them. And I looked at power. Mm. I looked at uh, pointing accuracy. I looked at At steering, I looked at compute, I looked at storage, I looked at um, antenna gain, I looked at bandwidth download, I looked at all of those metrics, and every single one of them was 10x every five years.
0: Yeah. I think I don't know if you agree, but I always think this is a really important point what you're mentioning here because I think for the wider public, that's at least following the space industry to some extent, people are very mesmerized and at this point in time knowledgeable about the cost degrees that has taken place uh, with regard to launch costs, right? That we have gone from I don't know, let's like say that the space shuttle like twenty five thousand or so dollars a kilogram on a in a good year to sub three thousand dollars on a Falcon Nine, but I personally think a lot of people are actually not aware about the cost decreases you are describing. or well, the cost of performance improvements, cost decreases, whichever way you want to look at it, right? And which I, which I think are equally, if not more important.
1: I think, I think you're 100% correct, Rafael. I think it's actually one of the biggest misunderstandings at the current point in time of what is driving this revolution of leveraging space to solve problems on Earth. Um, the cost of launch has come down no doubt. And if you take a really long few, you know, you just took a 30-year few, sure. um, it has come down in order of magnitude. If you take a 10-year few, if you take a 15-year um, a few, it has come down maybe by a factor of, of like three, maybe four, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, which is impressive. However, there are two other things that completely dwarf that change. The first one is the capability improvement for a fixed price point, which over a period of 15 years is a fold. Mm-hmm. And over a period of 20 years, it is 10,000fold. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely massive. It is truly Moore's law that is happening here. Mm-hmm. Now, the equally important other component here is not the cost of launch, but the availability of launch. Mm-hmm. The genius of Bob and Jordy was that they recognized when a rocket goes up, and again, not necessarily that widespread, there is a rocket going up somewhere on planet Earth every three days, roughly. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of rockets going up and have been going up for many, many decades. Mm -hmm. And they pick up big, massive payloads. Mm -hmm. But that big, massive payload is not perfectly matched to the thrust of the rocket. Mm -hmm. And so traditionally, you match that with some extra water and sand. And the genius idea of Jordi and uh, and Bob in 99 was, why don't we replace some of that sand and water with small satellites? Mm -hmm. And that was then creating the birth of secondary launch opportunities, Mm -hmm. which exploded access to launch. Mm -hmm. Spire has launched with 10 different launch providers. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done 30 different launch campaigns. And so the combination of a faster than Moore's law capability improvement and an exponential increase in access to space, those are the true drivers, even though they're not as sexy as seeing rockets going up and seeing that the price of a SpaceX launch keeps on coming down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and just um, as a side note for our listeners um, who who may not know, Peter has mentioned uh, the names Bob and Jordi here a few times, and those are not sort of like common friends of uh, pals of me and Peter, they're actually the the co-inventors of Cube set standard. The cube sets, as uh, as as listeners may know, is basically the standard where you have a, a ten set like a cube with a ten centimeter side length, and um, it's uh, using basically you can use increasing number of standardized components to construct satellites. That actually brings up another sort of important trend, which I guess we have implicitly, but not explicitly mentioned, right, which is miniaturization. I think you you alluded to that when you're saying, like, you know, the power of what used to be a Cray-2 supercomputer is now in our cell phones. But the same thing has happened with regard to satellite technology as well, right? And then, of course, is a nexus to then the launch cost decreases, right, because it means that the same capability is going to be occupying a smaller space, probably has much lower mass, which means your launch cost is lower too, which means you have a double whammy effect. That is absolutely that
1: is absolutely correct. Um, the, the design criteria for satellites have a lot in common with the design criteria for consumer electronics, mm-hmm. UAV, robotics. And so we get to leverage the advancements that are happening there and adapt them for use in space. And miniaturization is one of those one of those big elements.
0: Mm-hmm. And so maybe if we make this tangible, let's talk about your your own satellites. Um, I think I believe they're called the Lemur. Yeah, satellites. How big are they? How much do they weigh? And sort of what kind of capabilities do they have? So our Lemur, which
1: is uh, uh, an, an acronym. Uh, not just for a very pretty and funny animal, but it stands for low-earth multi-use receiver, Mm -hmm. is a satellite about... The size of a bottle of wine mm-hmm. um five kilograms six kilograms uh and it has little wings you know we call them solar panels but mm-hmm. you can think of them as as as, as wings so to speak um uh, and it has multiple capabilities that's you know that's where the m stands for multi-use mm-hmm. it is tracking uh ships which carry you know 17 trillions of, uh, of global trade um it tracks up uh, planes you know um uh, the aviation industry and it collects highly crucial weather information. And again, to to talk about the miniaturization here, those small satellites uh, today uh, produce in aggregate more data, for example, on the weather side than than just as far as we know, the rest of the world combined, a particular type of weather data, GPSRO, uh, because of that miniaturization uh, effect and because of the, um, uh, the scale effect of doing something many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have the world's largest RF sensing constellation in the world, and so um, that effect that you just mentioned beforehand really is driving that massive capability improvement here um, for, for, for the, for the, for the LEMUR
0: satellite. Mm-hmm. And you, so you said three kilograms? Uh, five. Five, five, I, five I kilograms. But so I guess that means um, I believe sort of the current rideshare cost or at least published rideshare cost on SpaceX is $5,000 a kilogram. So it, it means one of those launches for about $25,000. Is that right?
1: Um, I, I will have to, you know, you have to do your own math um, yeah. uh, here and then that Genuinely, I think there is a, a, a great differences if you buy, you know, a thousand kilograms sure. of yeah. something, or if you buy five kilograms of something, mm-hmm. and that applies to, you know. Um, uh, uh grocery supplies um, uh, yes. just as well as as to launch because but the point that you make here yeah. is an important one the massive capacity of those big rockets to launch very large structures at uh, substantially lower cost than for example the space shuttle did is really opening up um, the space economy to things like you know a, a base on the moon mm-hmm. traveling to mars mm-hmm. um uh, to uh to habitats hotels and research um, on orbit, manufacturing on orbit. So it really opens up the capability for the space economy to have much, much larger structures Mm -hmm. because now it is actually becoming affordable to launch something of, you know, a ton, 10 tons, 100 tons Mm -hmm. because there are so many, an increasing number of vehicles that are capable of launching larger masses and that is bringing down the cost together with the all the ingenuity that those launch companies have like reusability
0: and building larger rockets and, and better launch pads mm-hmm. So certainly and we'll, we shall talk about starship uh, uh, in a few minutes for sure. Uh, but coming back I think towards the beginning of the conversation you, just, you said something along the lines of like you know you really wanted to put satellites in place to produce a lot of data which can be helpful to us mm-hmm. on earth. If you look not just at Spire, but sort of the industry at large and whatever you want to call it the remote sensing industry, where are we in that process now? How far along the path are we? Are we are you know one percent Okay. one It's literally um, the very, very early stages. I would
1: I, I still continue to find the comparison to the uh, the revolution of mainframes to personal computers and the internet a fantastic comparison than analog. And I've looked at some curves, like the, the adoption of cell phones versus landlines. And the curve overlays, the steepness of this exponential curve is almost exactly the same as small satellites launched relative to large satellites launched. So there is a lot, a lot of similarities there. And I would still say we are in the, in the early 90s um, uh, uh, with regards to this evolution and the real use of the internet to massively change our life didn't start until the early 2000s
0: right yeah. Yes, that's when we really started having significant, let's call them apps, that were running on yeah. top of the infrastructure. Let's maybe stay, I mean, if you think this is a sort of correct analogy, let's maybe stay with that, sort of the infrastructure going towards apps, right? And you were basically describing two elements of infrastructures sort of big mainframes in a computer comparison going to personal computers. So with big satellites going to sort of like smaller, small sets, cube sets. So if we start with the infrastructure layer, I mean, How close to being done, so to say, are we on the infrastructure layer? We have a number of um, EO constellations now. We have a number of optical um, optical constellations. We have a number of radar constellations starting to have Hyperspectral constellations. How far how far down the path are we on the infrastructure layer in your mind?
1: So I would still argue that it's like you know in the one to five percent range, right? Um, uh, because what you the data you can capture from space to solve problems on Earth, it, it is still very very broad. Now uh, RF sometimes lives in between the world yeah. of EO mm-hmm. and communication. Mm-hmm. But just to give you, um, you know, one way to think about this, in the, in the 80s and even 90s, the concept that, um, uh, well, not the 90s, but in the 80s, that a company would have their own computer was pretty rare. Mm-hmm. If computers were something for governments and maybe the largest corporations mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. I think we are starting to move in that direction where the concept that a company has its own satellite constellation is becoming actually very doable. Mm-hmm. And so you that's where that's where my one to five percent number is coming from, that I could see. In in the future, more and more companies having their own satellites or satellite constellations the same way they have their own computers um, uh, uh, coming out of that revolution from mainframe to personal computer.
0: I think that's a super interesting point, um, and that brings up sort of the question on customer groups, and it's, it's, I guess, one of the main, if not the main, potential growth avenue for remote sensing as well, where historically, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of it has been you know, national security related. But now, in the recent past, we've actually seen a number of announcements um, you know, of commercial non-space companies coming in and talking about their own satellites, right? I mean, just off the top of my head, um, I think John Deere has talked about it or is talking about it, is doing actually something about it, um, I think Axon. And um, I think the most recent I've seen was, um, was Rio Tinto. So from the mining sector, I think. I think they're doing something with Pixel, which is a proposed hyperspectral um, constellation. Oh, and I guess then in the, in the realm of weather, we could also throw in Tomorrow I.O., which uh, um, I guess started as a non-space company and is becoming a space company. But yeah. how do you see this process evolving? I mean, what I'm seeing still day to day is I would agree with you here. We are really very early on. And part of the problem is that the non-space sectors are still not educated enough about absolutely the possibilities of space. Absolutely.
1: But it's the same way as it was, you know... In 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 the 80s and in the 90s Hmm. um, where the average person um, did not know what the internet was or how to use it. And I'm, uh, I, I read it somewhere. I don't know if it was true, but I read it somewhere that um, uh, Jeff Bezos was talking about this idea of selling computers over the internet. And someone asked him, I don't understand how you're going to get the book into the phone line, right? <laughs> I mean, so that concept of of, of of electronic communication driving a whole host of other things was just... It was just not widely spread. It was not widely understood. I, I remember a conference where there was a panel discussion about personal computers and, and the poor chap was asked, what's going to be the killer up for the personal computer? And it was so early. It was like the days of the 286, maybe, um, that the poor chap was sweating profusely trying to answer this. And he came up with this. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, housewives storing their recipes on computers. <laughs> and that's why we're going to need lots of computers. Right. Right. Um, I I, I think think the the, the broad understanding of what is possible, how quickly it is possible, and what price point it is possible, is much, much quicker changing than the world is aware of it. Mm -hmm. We basically always have the conversation that goes around something like this um uh, dear mrs customer you know tell us a little bit of what is bugging you oh you know i have this and this problem so It's like oh you know we can give you a satellite solution for that that solves this problem this and this way and the answer is like really mm. like it is never uh, i don't need that mm-hmm. it is virtually exclusively wow i didn't know it exists Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is kind of like where, where we as an industry um, uh, have like the, the tremendous opportunity of just making more and more of planet Earth available, uh, aware of the solutions that can be uh, found by leveraging space to solve problems right here on Earth.
0: So, so let me ask you, and I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you, um, how can we be as a sector, how can we be better at that? And are there maybe lessons from the analogy you're using you know, from the computer industry that we can use here? Because, I mean, you know, if, if I was to be facetious, um, the sad reality is that very often these days one gets confronted with people thinking that, well, space is a playground for billionaires. <laughs> and you may have seen the Matthew McConaughey Super Bowl ad and all of that. And uh, How can we be better at communicating that and educate, educating people?
1: I, I think I think we just have to be realistic. I actually don't think that uh, the communication is bad. I think we're actually in a much better position than the internet was because space is ultimately far more inspiring and interesting than, you know, digits were. And so I think we're actually in a good position. We just also have to be realistic relative to our size, right? If the the global economy is, what, $80 trillion and the space economy today is half a trillion dollars, we are actually more part of the public psyche than that GDP percentage would actually call for. Mm. So I think we're actually doing okay. It's just we have to be more patient. We just have to stick with it. We don't have to expect that people immediately understand it. I think we have to tone down the geek factor mm-hmm. and, and 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 tune up the the relevance factor. You know, in mm-hmm. the software, there's this mm-hmm. great this great talk of. Never talk um, about features. Only talk about benefits. Yeah, and I think that's that's one thing where I feel that um, the internet did a better job in 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 driving towards the, the the benefits and maybe not so much about the geek side. I mean, he had that as well, but that's like one thing that I see a lot. But overall, I would say it's just patience. It's just patience and being humble to recognize where we are in the cycle and and where we are in terms of importance right now relative to everything else that is going on in the world, but also recognizing that the exponential scale that is happening here is rapidly changing that.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up an important point there, which is, that at the end of the day, the customer, we should be customer centric, right? And like you say, like, try to understand what, what are really the problems that are bugging them and how can we help solve them? At the end of the day, I guess they may think space is cool, but they don't really care that the solution is coming from space, Absolutely, right? If, if anything, it, I could even see it intimidating some customers in like a space that's very complicated. It's probably too expensive and, and, and all of that. Now, how much of a constraint? So let me talk about my experience day to day as a space venture capitalist. So We would love to find more, and and by the way, this is a call to arms to some of uh, of the potential entrepreneurs among our listeners, we would love to find more companies that can help provide really value-added products to certain non-space sectors on Earth, using space data as a solution. It could be insurance, it could be mining, it could be agriculture, whatever. One constraint that I'm seeing day-to-day still is that the space sector is still very closed in on itself, and almost 100% of the business plans I'm getting, including for these types of businesses where somebody, for example, is proposing to uh, you, you know do EO and uh, data analysis for insurance, the founders are basically from the space industry. And it seems like we haven't really drawn in enough people from other sectors to gain their expertise as well. Is that something you're also seeing? And how are you kind of dealing with that in... Your job.
1: I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not an investor, so I I have um, uh, in the space sector. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I look around, it is. Uh, uh, the majority of people are coming uh, from the engineering side. I think this made it a little bit um, un- unusual for Aspire um, and beneficial for us that I had a, a very very strong business financial mm-hmm. numbers um, career um, uh, before before we uh, engaged into uh, in- into the industry. And that is, you know, you earlier asked how did we find the business model um, because we started with what are sustainable. Components competitive advantages of the industry like we set out to say okay this data from space it's data that um, uh, can only and exclusively be captured from space and it is data from sensors that can be software defined Mm -hmm. so we had those criteria that are driven by business rationale and and portus five forces and other kind of like um, environments and then we looked at those and it's like okay what type of data does it mean what type of technology does that mean mm-hmm. so we started with those business criteria mm-hmm. and then worked our way to technology which then became you know you use you know software defined radios mm-hmm. um, rf observation very very high asset utilization and all of that mm-hmm. um uh, i think i think it's just natural when you have a new technology that you have um a lot of uh, uh, of technologists that enter mm-hmm. it as entrepreneurs but even there i see it actually changing raffle um I see more and more people bringing in into the founding group, uh, uh, co-founders that have more business experience, more marketing experience. Mm-hmm. Again, I think, I think it's a matter of time that we'll have more and more of that. The same way as even today, when you look in Silicon Valley, um, uh, startups in the software as a service business, they generally have... a Pretty strong technology bend, mm-hmm. um, but they now often bring you know a sales or a marketing person mm-hmm. as a founding team member as well. Um, that probably wasn't really the case twenty
0: years ago. Maybe mm-hmm. no, I, I would definitely agree to that. Okay, um, I want to finish off our discussion of we've been discussing we've been talking a lot about uh, remote sensing, and I want to come uh, come on and talk um, about space as a service in, in a moment. But I want to ask you just sort of almost in a in a in rapid fire way about a few potential. Uh, trends in in EO that might be interesting, uh, just to hear your, your view. One of them is that we are having more and more satellites up there um, due to the trends that we've mentioned, and they're producing more and more data. Is there something like a data bottleneck, um, and how can we deal with that? So I think
1: space is going through like the same thing as you have on the Internet of Things on Earth. Um, so, for example, Spire launched, uh, it's now a few years ago, already Two supercomputers into orbit. Let will be talking teraflops of compute power okay. um, to do what's called computing at the edge, mm-hmm. where you take massive amounts of data and you crunch it in situ, so like in the location where the data is collected, mm-hmm. and extract the the valuable bits mm-hmm. right there, and you ship it away. It's almost like if you had um, a, a diamond mine that is taking the diamonds out of the material right on location Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to transport all of the rock and just Mm -hmm. diamonds is what you transport away, because you have a similar kind of like transportation problem so i do see that happening i mean we have done it i think other people are thinking about it or have started to do something similar and i think it's going to continue
0: okay that, that that makes that makes a lot of sense and then another thing that we've seen a few times now um but i don't think it has been done really in commercial reality is people talking about going to what's called uh, VLEO, very low Earth orbits, which I guess could provide you with things like an even better spatial resolution. Any thoughts on that?
1: So yeah, people have, have looked at it. People have um, you know, def- definitely experimented with it. Um, it's a it's a it's a trade-off between the extra amount of fuel that you have to bring, the extra thermal isol- isolation you have to bring, and the uh, uh, the resolution that you get. Mm-hmm. now for um, uh, for opticals, um, you double the resolution when you half um, your your distance. But for RF sensing, you quadruple it. Okay. So there definitely are benefits for being closer rather than further away, how that will be exactly used, how that trade-off um, uh, between fuel and thermal isolation and the increased cost of mass and size versus the value of the increased resolution, you know, I think that will depend on every single business case. But I could totally imagine business cases where there is the right trade-off to be made to not be in, you know... Um, uh, 800 kilometers, but mm-hmm. to be in, you know, 300 kilometers.
0: Mm-hmm. Your constellation, what's the altitude of your constellation?
1: Our ideal altitude is about 500 kilometers.
0: Gotcha. And that actually brings me on to my next, uh, my next question. And you guys, I don't think you guys have onboard propulsion, or do you? Uh, we do. You do have in onboard. So, oh, okay. In
1: some instances, we do. In some instances, we don't.
0: Okay. Well, I was going to ask you about, you know, space debris and space traffic management. It's obviously a big topic as we are uh, putting more and more satellites um, into space. What what are your thoughts? What's your maybe your day to day experience with things like uh, yeah, space traffic management? Do you have a lot of conjunction warnings? Do you guys have to you know, move around your satellites a lot?
1: So I wish that the knowledge about um, uh, space traffic management would not be ninety percent derived from the movie Gravity. I'm <laughs> um, just I mean, yes, space is a precious environment, mm-hmm. and we absolutely have to protect it just like we have to protect, you know, in my mind, the ocean, Earth's climate, and air, and all sorts of other environments. Um, uh, space is also incredibly vast. Mm-hmm. You know, to put that a little bit in perspective, um, the world's ocean cover only, they actually cover less than three quarters of mm-hmm. the world's surface area.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there are 300,000 massive ships operating on the ocean Every single day, mm-hmm. and millions of small vessels. This is just seventy-five percent of the surface area of that, the Earth. That,
0: that, that's fair. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most and that's just let's just for, the, yeah. for, the, for, for your for your listeners, yes.
1: um, the total number of satellites that are in like this orbit between you know zero and call it eight hundred or a thousand kilometers is a few thousand.
0: Yeah, let me just push back on that. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most of those ships carry transponders, precisely in part to avoid collisions with other ships, which is not currently the case with satellites, right?
1: Well, satellites um, have emitting signals for themselves, right? Um, And those transponders were introduced when the density of ships reached an amount where it made sense. Mm -hmm. So the question is... um, are we at this density where it yeah. makes sense? Yeah. And I just wanted to point out yeah. that there is two orders of magnitude between ships and space. And then space is not just one layer, but it is thousands of layers. Shell, cells, so cells. Mm-hmm. Arguably, we are, in terms of density, many, many orders of magnitude away from the density of ship traffic.
0: Yes. Okay. That's this is this is a longer discussion. I mean, you could go into things like the carrying capacity per orbit and so forth, but we're not having a debris discussion here, I suppose. I do want to switch over now though, finally, to talking about space as a service, right? And this is something that Spire is now offering. So I think when you guys started about almost 10 years ago, right? I mean, you're producing your satellites in-house. You did I think you're doing your own ground, you're still having your own ground stations, right? So you basically did a very vertically integrated model, I assuming Partly because there wasn't really um, much of a choice, or this just there was was, no choice. It was basically, yeah, it was the alternative you had to choose. Yeah. But again, kind of historical comparisons come back. You know, it's sort of, um, you know, at some point in time, there wasn't much um, of a choice if you wanted to have a computing architecture for your company, where these days you can just go to AWS or Azure or some other competitors and outsource everything. So it seems to me that you guys at Spire had basically your AWS moment where you realized. Well, we're really good at building and operating satellites. Why don't we offer this, like AWS, now also to third-party customers? That is 100% correct. Okay.
1: Um, the same way as, as Amazon recognized that to run their business, they had to build a massive infrastructure, which... I'm sure it was a bit of a pain in the behind and incredibly complex because literally you had to deal with building permits and licensees and energy production and and, and HVAC systems and all everything else that had nothing to do with the business model side, but had to be solved first before you could run your business. Mm -hmm. But once they had solved it and they run this large infrastructure on it, they said, why don't we avoid for other companies? having to do the same thing Mm -hmm. and we just let them rent it Mm -hmm. so we you know invented you know true space as a service a few years ago um i truly believe we were uh, the first one to really talk about it um, as a concept Mm -hmm. and we're the only one which is really offering this soup to nuts service we do tens of thousands of contacts a month we process and ship to customers terabytes of data mm-hmm. we run the largest listening constellation in the world so we just let other people say like, hey you know we get now close to 400 years of space heritage and experience and doing all this at a large scale mm-hmm. for some of the single most demanding customers in the world mm-hmm. why didn't you just rent it mm-hmm. and you focus on your business mm-hmm. and that is been an incredibly gratifying offering because we now can talk with entrepreneurs which start with a business problem mm-hmm. you know um, uh, uh, Aurora Tech mm-hmm. there are wildfires mm-hmm. that's a business problem yeah. and they understand what data they need to solve it yeah. and they they built the sensor and they built yep. the software and everything, right? And then they recognize it's like, now I need to do this whole huge rigmarole of figuring out how to get in space and launch and licenses and ground stations and satellites and pointing and and um, uh, and all this other kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And we just say, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. All of that complexity, we just take away and we give you an API. And that really enables entrepreneurs to focus on their business. It means investors can focus on the business in the same way as no investor today needs to focus anymore on like, well, do you know how to build a data center? What's your experience in you know, navigating zoning laws? And what's your experience in, they don't need to do this anymore. They did in the 80s and 90s not to yep. anymore. And the same thing is true for customers um, uh, that work with us. And their investors, all of the complexity of space, Spire has figured it out, it is running it 24-7. You can just rent
0: it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which also means, by the way, you're moving from CapEx to OpEx, right? 100%, so you have it's a monthly subscription. You're
1: 100 percent correct. It's a multi-subscription. You have great certainty of like when you will have something to demonstrate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't have to wait, you don't have like this, all this uncertainty about it. Um, you have great certainty when you can start and you can match your cost with your revenue because it is a monthly subscription and you don't have to plunk down um, a a wheelbarrow full of cash at the beginning and then wait a sometimes not very clearly defined amount of time until you have something to show. You just pay a, a, a reasonable monthly number that you can match with the revenue that you can hope to generate from your business model.
0: Okay, let's just go slightly more into detail because there are so many um, parts basically that you're taking off the hands of the entrepreneurs that I think it's worth mentioning them. So basically, let's say an entrepreneur comes up with some, you know, interesting use case, like some of the use cases we described, you know, you found some solution, some sensor, which basically the data would serve a you know, a significant target market on earth. So entrepreneurs, the sensor has an idea about the business model, the target market, the go-to-market and all of that. Um, they come to Spire. So first of all, are you using the same, is it the Lemurs, the Lemur platform as mm-hmm. well? You're using, so, so uh, remember this is 3U? Three, three yeah, with
1: 3U and 6U, and we have larger platforms as well that all are like basically just a, a pumped up Lemur. It's yeah. the same platform, it's the same technology, it's the same everything, it's the same heritage.
0: Okay, um, so as long as the whatever the um, the payload is the entrepreneur that we're really the, the core value of the entrepreneurs likes, as long as that payload fits the sort of you know size, weight, and I guess power requirements, we're fine, right? I guess those are yeah. the main the main constraints. And then, if I was to come to you today, you know, with, with some payload and some idea and something that does fit in a little more, I mean, what kind of? And let's say I wanted to do a demo, like an IOD and a mm-hmm. demo mission, right? Maybe with one or two satellites to start with. Roughly speaking, what kind of you know cost and Time frame? Are we talking about ever so?
1: Yeah, it, it now it now really depends yeah. on, uh, on 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 what are the uh, 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 the requirements that you have. You know, how big is your payload? Like, I mean, is yeah. it a payload which needs you know one watt, or is it a payload that needs fifty watts? Yeah. Right. So there's 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 very very large variability sure. there. But what is what is I think the more important point is that you come to us as a customer we get you operational in orbit in between six and 12 months. Six to 12 months. Okay. That is the big portion. Because when you think about the cost for a startup, it is, yes, I have to purchase something. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I have running costs, my people, mm-hmm. my office, you know, my payroll, all of that. And every single month delay that I have to wait longer to have something operational is a huge cost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is the huge driver. We take often 12, 13, 14 months of running the company cost mm-hmm. out of a business model mm-hmm. by giving customers the certainty and speed of being operational within six to twelve months.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean, and everything that's obviously sort of implicitly involved there in the middle, which is getting the launch right, and then the licensees, um, all of that. Obviously, you're taking off the entrepreneur. Yes, everything. Yeah. But how about the spectrum? How does that work? You spectrum.
1: So if you need to transmit something, then this is a spectrum that you have to get. Okay. I mean, we can sometimes help you, mm-hmm. right? And we have, you know, health customers there because again, you know, we have, you know, licenses in three jurisdictions. We have good relationships with people. We are very, very um, uh, uh, responsible and, and cooperative operators and, 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 and known for that. But generally, if you have to transmit something that is the license that you get. If you receive something, that generally is very, very easy. Um, um, and for for all of the us, we actually have and hold the licenses for that is necessary for a large number. Not not like everyone, but a vast majority. Of our customers, we hold all the licenses as well for them to do what they need to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Understood. And you made it sound like it's basically um, in the end like a subscription product. Yeah. Is that actually what it is? Is it like should we imagine it as a, as a monthly payment yeah. or is there sort of like an initial payment? No. For the, no. It is a monthly payment. It's, just, it's just a monthly payment. What happens when the? Um, uh, I'm going to assume that the lifetime of of a Limur, like many low of orbit satellites, is probably like something like five to seven years. Um, what happens once the the lifetime of the satellite is up?
1: Oh, so you you sign a contract for a certain minimum duration, mm-hmm. right? Generally, that is—I um, think for us it is uh, it is two to three years. Um, you can then extend um, mm-hmm. if you then want to extend beyond the um, uh, the lifetime of one satellite. We take care of that for you. You just have to give us another
0: payload. Oh, but you just keep keep paying the monthly fee. Yeah. Because so again, there's no yeah. sort of upfront or renewal no. fee or no. anything. No. Anything like that? Very interesting. Besides the, um, the 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 spectrum and the need to get spectrum if one needs that, is there anything else that's sort of left that the entrepreneur has to do other than the payload? They should be
1: able to work with an API. Okay. And I'm saying this, you know, um, with with a big grin on my face because you know uh, my eight year old daughter is just about able to speak with an API in Python, right? So that literally is what it is. Yeah. Um, uh, uh now there are specific um business cases where you want to transmit something from a particular country um uh and then you need a you know a, a license to do that transmission let's say you know you want to transmit some uh, some data out of a country well that's that's a ground based operation and you need some license for that mm-hmm. if that's your business model mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um uh but from the from the space side element literally you get an api
0: understood so it's really just your, your... just like
1: like how you would work with Amazon AWS.
0: Okay. So you're really taking 95% plus of the work, basically out of the entrepreneur. Absolutely. Entrepreneur's hand. Well, I think
1: that the entrepreneur, she has enough work with making the business work. Mm -hmm. Like that is, that is, that is hard enough. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we have this massive explosion of leveraging the Internet mm-hmm. is because the vast majority of money doesn't go into building data centers anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not that every startup that comes out of you know, Y Combinator is going out there and says, like, OK, well, you know, Mr. VC, please give me 10 million dollars and then hands it over to Cisco and says, here is $9.5 million, please build me data center. Yeah. Right? They take the $10 million, and is like, you know, here, Amazon, here's like, you know, 50 grand, you know, get me going. And then they spend the money on product development, on marketing, on hiring, on people, because they don't have to do this massive upfront investment anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that um, our model, and I'm, I'm sure that other companies that can develop the same scale as we do, that can truly be, and Amazon, so to speak, um, um, will enable the growth at, at this at this high pace that we're seeing because new companies don't have to build data centers anymore.
0: Yeah. And I must say, speaking again from a perspective as a venture capitalist, I really hope that future space entrepreneurs get that into their head. Because we're still seeing actually these days quite a few business plans where people just say, oh, we're going to build our satellite in-house. And I think it's just becoming harder and harder to justify unless you have a really specialized
1: need. It is incredibly hard to justify um, because there is so much similarity um, that is between two satellites. If you think about two satellites that are vastly different in their use cases, Mm -hmm. right? 90% of the stuff is the same. They all have batteries. They all have onboard computers. They all have radios for downlink. They all have solar panels. They all have data distribution systems. They all have um, uh, um, uh, EPS systems. They all have power distribution systems. All of those systems are the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The mass of a satellite is mostly not the payload, but the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So it really makes no sense. And then you have all the complexity of launch. You have all the complexity of ground station. Mm-hmm. You have all the complexity of operating satellites. Yeah, It really makes no sense that everyone does, does 90% over and over and over and over again. We yeah. would not have as vibrant a software industry if everyone where to rebuild the data center from the ground up. Because trust me, the data center on the quotation marks that we built, you know, 10 years ago is a joke compared to the one that we run today. Mm -hmm. You do learn something when you do it Mm -hmm. hundreds of times thousands of times you'd absolutely get massively better in doing it
0: oh totally agree and you know that actually brings me to the next question I was going to ask but I was going to ask about reliability because some people might be worried okay well I'm going to be totally dependent on Spire what if there you know something goes wrong and then my basically my business goes down but I guess the response would be, well, wouldn't you rather rely on somebody who has done this, uh, I think the equivalent of hundreds of years in space than trying to, like, where's the risk greater, right?
1: Even more so. It's not just that I've done it, or like, you know, I mean, personally, but, um, uh, you know, we as a company have done it for hundreds of years. It is my livelihood, Mm. depends on it. Yeah. Like if my infrastructure doesn't work, I'm dead in the water. Mm -hmm. And I love you, Mrs. Customer, but my own business is just still a little bit closer to me. So you can be damn sure that I make sure my infrastructure works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, my infrastructure is still the same starting point of my business as it is for you. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that um, we have done it hundreds of years and we have done it thousands and tens of thousands of times our life depends on it mm-hmm. and i think that is like the the powerful story of A- A- amazon aws as well is that if that infrastructure is used by the big trillion dollar Amazon industry and it is used to be rented by customers. It is the same infrastructure. Yeah. Everyone sits in the same boat.
0: Yeah. And we're staying with the Amazon comparison. So, I mean, that's the question these days. Is Amazon more of a cloud computing company? Is it more of an e-commerce company? Is it both? I mean, if you look at sort of your, you know, I don't know, long-term vision for Spire, because of course we shouldn't discuss anything short-term here. It's a publicly quoted company. But in the long-term vision, I mean, what would you like Spire to be? So
1: for us, the driving force was always is, you know to create um uh to leverage space to solve problems on earth. Mm-hmm. And and one of the the big generational challenges that that I see that we see is is climate change. Mm-hmm. Um uh, mm-hmm. uh, that has always been driving us. And so um if we can help humanity adapt to climate change, you know, make weather substantially more predictable, I have set this um, um visionary aspirational goal of mm-hmm. making weather prediction as accurate as Swiss train schedules. Yeah. Uh that, that is really a a driving force for us yeah um
0: uh, i would say okay understood let me take a step back and sort of um i want to ask you one question which is so you have had this experience of you know founding a major what became a major space company almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. i think or at least i hope there are a lot of listeners who are considering becoming space founders A lot has happened in space, right, in the last 10 years. I mean, it's become much more mainstream. People like SpaceX have become a really reliable launch provider. There are now other alternative non-government launch providers. Starship seems to be on the horizon there seems to be much more capital available that's ready to be invested in space. If you were a founder today, you know how, how would you look at the industry differently, and what would be, I don't know, some some lessons or thoughts for today's founders. Well, space. I think
1: I think the first thing that would happen is if today someone tells their friends that I'm that they're leaving their job and starting a space company. Um, uh, it's more likely that the friend says, can I join you? Rather than you're
0: but, totally nuts.
1: <laughs> which is what happened to me. You know, I, you know a friend of mine was sitting me down, you know, and says like, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about you,
0: Peter, right? And he
1: was sincere yeah. that there was a worry that I was leaving a, um, a, a, a good career to do something in space. Um, I don't think this would happen today anymore. Yeah. Um, and that then translates into um, that there are people like you today, that I wish you would have been around 10 years. Um, People that want to invest in space and that recognize that here is a disruption happening that is very, very akin to the disruption that happened from mainframe to personal computers Mm -hmm. and that there is a, a... Enormous amount of transformational value to be created and captured and supported. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not necessarily the case ten years ago. Um, uh, I, I recently read a statistics that the uh, that the number of students that want to stop, want to um, study aerospace engineering has like gone up fifty percent or sixty percent, like mm-hmm. an insane number. Mm-hmm. So the number of people that want to go in the field is dramatically larger. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those are just some of the things that that have changed. What hasn't changed is is still the same. It's like you know, if you can solve a real world problem, um, and space is the best way of doing it, then you have a business. Um, if space is just the second best way of doing it, and you have at least uh, a very very tough situation, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, fully fully agree. So where would that leave us if I asked you the following question? So if you were to start a new space company today, what would be I don't know, what may be some fields you may be focusing on, some business models or sub-sectors, whatever you want to call it, some activities. I, you
1: know what, well, my brain just
0: froze by the thought of having to start
1: another <laughs> company, let it go, <laughs> oh, another space company. And um, I have to say, my heart is a little bit taken. Mm. You know, really helping humanity adapt to climate change. Weather is like found everywhere. Mm-hmm. It is so often still, you know, the butt end of the joke, you know, we can't predict the weather. And I don't think it has to be. Mm-hmm. I think the lack is uh, uh, is in and we don't have enough data. Um, uh, we have more and more analytic schemes that can be, you know, uh, well deployed there. Uh, so there is it shouldn't be. And I think we can we can be a contributor to making a difference there. Uh, I mean today, um, there's over a billion people that have better weather prediction because of our data. Mm-hmm. And that's a great start. I would just like it to be eight billion.
0: Mm-hmm. Understood. No, that's that, that. That's very fair, and I fully agree with you, obviously, on the potential and importance of of using space for uh, mit- monitoring and mitigating climate change. I think that should be really one of our the the key contributions of the sector. Let me ask you the final question I was asked, which is about science fiction. So, if we if we survive climate change and all of that, if we have a science fictional future, what are some of your potential inspirations or things you like from? science fiction it could be movies uh tv books whatever
1: oh science fiction so so not okay um uh, so i just literally um uh, um, uh, uh i recently finished uh, a follow-on book from the guy who wrote the martian and the weir um uh, it was called the hail mary uh, project and i thoroughly oh, yeah. enjoyed that as well it has the same Pretty funny um, uh, style, it is It is quite scientific in its yeah. writing, so I, I really, really enjoyed that one.
0: Speaking of climate change, did you have a chance to read uh, Kim Stanley Robertson, yet the Ministry of the Future, Ministry for the Future, I think it is? Uh, no, I have not. That, that's, that's actually an interesting one, so I'll, I'll leave you with that recommendation. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really looking forward to see what, uh, what Spy will continue to do for the space sector and for the world at large. And, and yeah, best of luck with everything.
1: Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, um, uh, hopefully there was some good nuggets for, 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 for you and, 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 your, and your valuable uh, listeners.
0: Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or are interested in being a sponsor. Drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.